listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, I'd love to worship with you. Had a much older, wiser pastor years ago tell me early in my ministry that you should never depend on the music wherever you're preaching. Should never depend on the music to get you ready to preach. Uh, I've found some great wisdom in that, uh, but I've also discovered uh, the importance uh, and the power of corporate worship and us affirming great truth together. Uh, even affirming this morning that we are determined to build our lives on the foundation of God's great love for us. Uh, that's important. Uh, we live in a day where. Uh, the importance and the significance of the corporate worship gathering, uh, the church gathered, uh, is um, minimized. Uh, but we know that this is important. And if uh, anything, uh, hopefully we've learned over the last year and a half or so uh, the importance of this time. And so it's always good to see you, good to see your face. Uh, we recognize that there are some, for various reasons, who cannot uh, be with us. Uh, and we want you to know, if you're watching online this morning, as we know many of you do faithfully, uh, that we love you, we miss you, um, and uh, we're just glad that we do have the technology for you to be able to join us. I know even some of you, when you've been on vacation this year, you've jumped on the live stream and that kind of thing, and so uh, it's always a great, great thing. So anyway, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. While you're turning there, let me encourage you to be here next week in the 945 time slot. Uh, that's when we are going to wrap up uh, what we've called summer sessions this year. We've been looking at a number of significant, important, theologically significant questions, uh, looking uh, from the angle really of cultural apologetics. This morning we um, attempted to uh, look at the question of uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? Uh, and next week, we'll wrap it up with the question, can Jesus be true for me and not for you? Are you true for you and not for me? Uh, and so that will be next Sunday right here in this room, 945. We have donuts and coffee and all that stuff uh, during that time slot as well. So hope you'll be back for that. Well, in our study of 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul has been dealing uh, primarily uh, with the uh, problem of division in the church at Corinth. We have said from the beginning that the church at Corinth is a messed up church. Uh, and in the second half of chapter 12, particularly, he is concerned about the divisions that have developed over spiritual gifts, how they are understood, how they are utilized. And so uh, the bottom line is this. Some at Corinth, because of the giftings that they had, uh, considered themselves to be super spiritual, superior, uh, looking down on others, and would have been inclined to say, I have no need of you because I have these gifts. There were others on the other end of the spectrum uh, who were dealing with uh, some inferiority, perhaps, uh, who said, well, because I don't have the same gifts as you, or because my gifting doesn't put me up in front of people in the spotlight, so to speak, uh, then I'm less important. I don't have anything to contribute. And so last week we saw where Paul developed this metaphor of the human body to show how every member, though different, though diverse, uh, belongs together in the body, that the body may be one, 
uh, and may function as God designed it. Every member indispensable. And so we are to celebrate and we are to cherish uh, our diversity. I'm glad that we're not all the same. I'm glad that we don't all have the same passions, the same giftings, uh, all of those things. We're to celebrate that diversity and we are also to uh, function in a spirit of unity. Uh, within the fellowship of the body of Christ. Now, if you were here last week, you may have noted that we did not deal specifically or in detail with verses 27 through 31, uh, the last part of chapter 12 there, because uh, that particular section of Scripture functions as a bit of a bridge. Paul is about to go on. Uh, If you look ahead even this morning to chapter 14, he's going to go on to deal with those spiritual gifts in more detail. In chapter, in verses 27 through 31 there of chapter 12, he is kind of setting up that discussion. And you'll notice as you scan over those few verses uh, in verse number 28 that he lists some spiritual gifts. And it's as if he ranks them. He, he places them in some sort of order. First, there are apostles and some prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Interestingly, The Corinthians seemed to particularly value speaking in tongues. Uh, They saw that as a sign of their unique privileged status in some cases. Well, Paul, uh, some commentators would suggest he puts it at the bottom of the list as sort of a poke in the eye uh, that he's going to to go on and deal with uh, in much more detail in chapter 14. And so uh, I want to encourage you to be back next week as we uh, look at chapter 14, and hopefully we'll have some important questions answered for us uh, in that 14th chapter. But Paul asks some rhetorical questions in verse number 29 of chapter 12. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Uh, Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak in tongues? Can all interpret? And the Greek form of those uh, questions, as they come to us in the original language of the New Testament, anticipates a negative answer. It's kind of like in English, us asking, we don't all speak in tongues, do we? Uh, We're not all apostles, are we? Of course not. And yet these different gifts have their role, their place, their part to play in the unity of the body of Christ. And still, however, he has an exhortation. In verse 31, he says, earnestly desire the best gifts. Some are more edifying, more useful for the whole church than others. And in chapter 14, he's going to take up the issue that he has put in place there in verse number 13, and he's going to answer the question, which are the best gifts? How do you know which ones to value and why? So that's coming uh, in chapter 14. Okay, so that's the extent of our previews for next week. Uh, Before he can deal with that and he can answer those questions, uh, there's a preliminary matter that is absolutely vital here. It's vital to us understanding and grasping uh, so that, that, that so he even has to put it in place uh, here in chapter 13. Uh, and that is this issue of love. Now, of all the chapters in 1 Corinthians, um, you're probably most familiar with chapter 13. Someone says, hey, 1 Corinthians 13, you immediately think, well, that's the love chapter, right? I've, I've heard it used in weddings and, and in various places. Uh, it's just it's a section that we're uh, most familiar with, with in Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth. 
Well, I, you need to understand, and one of the reasons that we value going through Scripture, as we do here uh, generally at First Baptist Church in an expository sort of way, is so that you can see some of even these familiar texts in their context. Uh, and so while we may often, you know, kind of pull chapter 13 out and just talk about love and everything, and you'll hear it taught in a topical sort of way and everything, and that, that, that's okay as long as we're faithful to Scripture I think it is important for us to see it in the context here. And so it's nestled between these two chapters where Paul is dealing primarily with spiritual gifts. And we don't want to lose that connection. Okay, And so it's, it's kind of like uh, our computers and our phones because... After all, most of our phones uh, are computers. Um, my, my phone has more firepower than the first desktop computer that I owned uh, a few years ago. But if you don't have the right operating system, the latest operating system in some cases, then you can have real problems. And until you have it, it's, it things just aren't going to work right. And so if you use apps and, and those sorts of things, which most of us do, uh, then you know that you've got to have the right operating system in place. Uh, well, Paul is going to teach us what he describes here as the more excellent way. That's how he puts it in verse number 31. It's like an operating system that must be uh, installed in our Christian lives, and without it, our spiritual gifts, the application of those gifts, will malfunction. They'll get out of whack. Uh, love is the operating system that must be installed in your Christian life, without which spiritual gifts will malfunction. And so chapter 13 seeks to answer that all-important question that Tina Turner sang about, what's love got to do with it, right? And you're thinking, preacher, you're not supposed to know that. Who sang that song? What does love have to do with this? Why is it stuck right here in between chapters 12 and 14? Well, let's look at it together. The 13 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Notice he, he kind of ties it together. He's still talking about this tongues thing here in verse number one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Think about that in the context of spiritual gifts. Okay, Don't envy, don't boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
And so Paul is going to answer that important question here for us. What's love got to do with it? And he wants us to understand this uh, in, in, in three different uh, ways. He answers this question in three different ways. First of all, he'll show us in verses 1 through 3 that love matters because without it, nothing else will. And then in verses 4 through 7, love matters because love makes us like Christ. And then thirdly, love matters, verses 8 through 13, because love endures forever. It lasts forever. And so let's first consider this. Without love, nothing else matters. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Some of the Corinthians thought that their spiritual gifts made them spiritual people or special people. And they were, in some cases, looking down on others. And so Paul is taking them to task in these verses, and he uses some exaggeration to do so, some hyperbole. It's a way to sort of verbally smack them upside the head, you might say, and so uh, to help them understand that they are way off base. And so he starts by listing uh, some spiritual gifts that he possesses and uses in his own Christian life. He said, uh, in, in fact, if we continue down into chapter 14, you'll find there that he said of himself that he spoke in tongues. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He spoke in tongues. He had the gift of prophecy, which if we could just press the pause button for a moment, and let, let me maybe add a, a, a clarifying principle for you as, in this regard. Most often when we see the word prophecy, we think of the foretelling of the future. Okay, some of you are inclined to those kinds of studies. You like prophetic studies, and you tune into prophetic ministries and those sorts of things. And one of the reasons that your interest is piqued in that kind of thing is because uh, of this thought that they are going to somehow unpack uh, things future that you don't know. They're going like to un un unlock the secret, the secret code, and, the, and those sorts of things. And, and certainly those are some valid studies and things that we should look at. And many scriptures do have a future prophetic interpretation, for sure. But most often in Scripture, when we see this idea of prophecy, it is more about a foretelling of the truth than it is about a foretelling of the future. That's why as you study the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, you will see them continually saying what? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Now many times the message that they delivered had future implications. That's for sure. Okay, but what they were really doing was forthtelling the truth that God had given to them as his special messengers. And so uh, he even talks about that here. He was the recipient of this inspired knowledge. He had extraordinary faith, he says, that he might be sustained during the, the costliest trials of his apostolic ministry. Uh, in fact, we know that the Apostle Paul, just by way of his own testimony, that he had, had in many respects, left everything. He describes it this way, as I counted it all as dung, as rubbish, I gave it all up for the sake of Christ. And yet in that, he says, suppose I had all of this to the fullest degree imaginable. Suppose I spoke not only with the tongues of men, which by the way is, is, is often what we find in scripture as it relates to the gift of tongues, that is actual human language unlearned by the speaker, uh, for the sake of the understanding of the gospel. And that's, that's kind of a side note as well. But he says, suppose I had the gift not only of human languages, but suppose I spoke also in the tongues of angels. This is where some of that hyperbole comes in. He's not saying anyone can speak the tongues of angels or that's what tongues is particularly. He's saying, even if I were to go to the extreme and I had the gift to, to such a degree that I can speak angelic languages too, 
Suppose I had the gift of prophecy to such an extent that I could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Suppose I didn't only surrender everything in my life for the sake of the gospel, went so far as to become even a a martyr for the cause uh, of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for my body even to be burned. Suppose I did all of this. Suppose I did all of this. And it were not animated and motivated and driven by love for others. What use would it really be? The spirit-given ability to speak in human languages, Paul says, even the hypothetical ability to speak angelic languages would be as worthless and as empty, according to verse number one, as a noisy gong. More literally, a noisy brass. The Corinthians were uh, well-known. They were uh, somewhat famous for their production of brass. They had a proprietary technique for for making brass. It was a prominent industry in Corinth. And so there's a a noisy brass or a clanging cymbal, probably alluding to the cacophony that would have been common and produced in the, the pagan temples in and around Corinth. And so he is saying to them, no matter the power, no matter the drama, no matter how impressive or spectacular your giftings may be, they are worthless, even as spiritually dangerous to you as the chaotic racket that the pagans make when they worship if it is not driven, harnessed by love for one another. We have to say it this way, I guess it all comes down to where your heart is. And even when scripture speaks of a final judgment, the bema and these sorts of things, and it talks about our works uh, being, being tested and all those things. One of the things that it makes clear is our motivation. You can do good things, but do them the wrong way. I think one of the things that we sometimes miss in our culture is we think, well, if I'm just saying the right things, it really doesn't matter how I'm saying it. That's why we have so many issues today. That's why there's so much division even in the church. Because in our effort to be truthful, we don't express it in love. We don't express it in love. And so that's, that's fundamentally what Paul is saying here. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, I have the gift of faith so as to move mountains and have not love. Notice this. This is strong language. I am nothing. The Corinthians thought that they were really something because of their gifts. But even if you were to express and make use of these gifts in the most impressive manner conceivable, if it's not love-driven, if it's not, if it's not operated within the operating system of God's love, whatever you may think of yourself, you are in fact nothing. Suppose I give everything up. Remember Jesus said, That we are not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We are to store up instead treasures in heaven. And so it seemed like some of the Corinthians may have misunderstood. There was even a a group who would have been described as the aesthetics. They would uh, purposefully, intentionally live a life of abject poverty. That their radical sacrifice in itself would make them extra special and spiritually more advanced than others. And so Paul says, it's possible to do all of that. It's possible even to die a martyr's death and ultimately gain nothing. No treasure stored up in heaven. Even though you're, you're given all of your treasures up, up on, here on earth. If love is not the engine that drives your sacrifice, it's nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a constant battle that I fight, thinking that because of status or position or certain privileges or reputation or giftings or ministry, because of something that we do, that we must therefore be important. 
You must give place to me. I'm, I'm superior after all. I'm a cut above. That attitude Paul is teaching us here really stinks. If in any way, shape, or form your particular giftings make you feel superior to another human being, you're not utilizing that giftedness in the way God intends. God hasn't given us anything. God hasn't given us anything so that we feel arrogant or superior to anyone else. Now, you notice how Paul has alluded a few times to the words of the Lord Jesus in these opening verses. He speaks about having all faith to remove mountains. Remember, Jesus said something uh, very similar in Mark chapter 11, verse number 23. He speaks about giving away all that he has. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, his words to the rich young ruler uh, were precisely to that effect. He was to give up all that he had, sell it, give the proceeds to the poor, and follow Jesus. Even the language of giving your body up echoes language used of how Jesus gave himself up on the cross. And so Paul's message is clear. He's saying if it's even possible to conform your life in an external sort of way to the pattern and to the commands of Jesus Christ and ultimately gain nothing and be nothing if love is not at the heart of it. So what's love got to do with it? Because without it, nothing else matters. You may have heard it said, oh, oh sure, he, he, he's, he's not very loving, but boy, he can sure preach. Well, she, she's not very loving, but she's got the gift of hospitality. Well, I, I'll concede he's not very loving, but, but he can pray. Love matters because without it, nothing else will. Nothing else will. I want you to notice number two this morning. Love makes us like Christ. Look at verses four through seven. And you'll find there that he describes love in terms of what love is and what love is not. What it does and what it does not do. And so he begins with two positive assertions that kind of sum this all up. He says, love is patient. Patient. More than some sort of a a stoic, uh, passive endurance. Uh, The the word is literally long-burning. Now, if immediately your mind goes to a a romantic type of burning love, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of talk. When 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 he's saying here that love is long burning, we might paraphrase it this way. It has a long fuse. I think most of us know what that means. Some of us are known for having a very short fuse. Okay, If things don't go my way, I'm really impatient, and you're going to hear about it. Okay, we can, uh, literally, the phrase is that really we're all familiar with, I can explode on someone, right? So the idea here behind love is patient is that it is long burning. Love is patient. And then he says love is kind. And we're going to come back to the word that he uses for kindness in a few moments, but it's important. Love is kind. Love is warm. It's tenderhearted towards one another. Some of you may uh, be listening along with uh, me and some others of us uh, to this podcast that has come out in recent weeks uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, and some of you are old enough to uh, recognize, remember the name Mark Driscoll. Uh, he's not as well known now, uh, but uh, launched a, a church in the Pacific Northwest called Mars Hill. 
And it became this huge conglomerate, you might say, multi-campuses and all these things. And even along with that, uh, launched a, a church planting network, the Acts 29 network, of which he is no longer the leader and so forth. And this podcast chronicles, literally, the rise and the fall of Mars Hill. Uh, in really a relatively short time, it grew rapidly. Uh, and like so many other stories that we're hearing these days, uh, there are situations where uh, the, 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 the growth, uh, the influence even of certain ministries, and this is not a knock on larger churches or mega churches even or anything like that, but th- th- that growth and all of that cannot be sustained by the character of some of its leaders. And some of the things that are highlighted primarily in this podcast related to Driscoll particularly, and, and even some of the other elders would say they were, they were a, a part of this as well, is just being straight up unkind. Like an abusive uh, style of leadership. Not patient. Known for being quick-tempered and blowing up on people and, and things of this nature. And this is all unpacked really in a, in a very well-done podcast. It's really interesting to see that, to know the gravity of this. And, and anybody, most anybody would say that, that Driscoll and other leaders like that ha, are incredibly gifted. As a speaker, as a communicator, just incredibly gifted. But then you've got this issue over here. There's just a lack of love. This is the lack of grace extended to others. A grace that you would, on any level, want extended to yourself. And so Paul is making this clear here. And so he gives us these eight negatives. He says, eight things love doesn't do or isn't. Love is not envious or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Now, I don't know about you, but that stings a little bit. He says, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't think that sin is entertaining. Now, we can be pretty certain that this is not just a random list of vices. These are descriptors of problems that Paul has already found in the Corinthians. In fact, he's addressed some of them already in this letter. He deals with envy in chapter 3, verse 3. He deals with boasting in chapter 4, verse 7. He deals with arrogance in chapter 8, verse number 1. So the Corinthians are supposed to see in these negative sinful habits and behaviors what love is not. And he intends for them to see themselves in the mirror, you might say. I have to wonder this morning, do we see ourselves in the mirror here? That's one of the things that God's word is to us. That's a fact why James says, hey, don't be like the man who sees himself in a mirror and then leaves and forgets what manner of man he is. God, through his word and by his Holy Spirit, reveals to us who we really are. Scripture says it is a discerner of even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so that's why if you are a child of God, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you open your Bible, you should find pretty common, pretty common that it's revealing some things to you that you may not like about yourself. That's the power of the Word of God. It's alive and powerful. That's the effect that it has. And so Paul is saying here, hey, see, look at yourself in the mirror here for a moment. And then if you look at verses 6 and 7, he gives some positives. He says, love rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The whole passage is worth memorizing and and using and reciting. If that maybe seems to be too much for you, you might just memorize verses 6 and 7 then. I found them especially useful uh, over uh, the course of my life. Uh, I've not used them uh, perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but I have found this to be an especially meaningful section of scripture for me when the subject of gossip and malicious talk comes up and when you feel like maybe the rumor mongers have wounded you. What do you do when you feel like people have rushed to judgment and they assume the worst about you and they think they understand even your motives when maybe you're not leading in a way that they think you should lead and it's disheartening. It's difficult. What do you do? Well, you preach 1 Corinthians 13 verses 6 and 7 to yourself. That's what you do. In the face of self-pity, which I'm prone to, uh, in, the, in the face of defensiveness and the instinct to strike back, which I'm certainly prone to, you say to your wounded heart, love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's hard to return fire when love bears all things is your guiding principle. Five positives, eight negatives what love is and is not. But I think what's most noteworthy this morning is that love is a person. Notice how Paul speaks about love almost as though love was a person. Love is the one who does this or does not do that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast. Love does these things. He speaks about love like it's a person because it is. Paul has been working with the words and the works of Jesus throughout this passage. What he is saying is these things, these things are characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you Corinthian Christians claim to follow. He's fundamentally saying in your giftedness, in using your giftedness and all those things, just live like Jesus. Just live like Jesus. One commentator even points out uh, how in pagan society there was a confusion about the title for Jesus, for Messiah, which in Greek is Christos. And the word for kindness, or kind, which is krestos, sounds very similar. And so in Rome, A.D. 49, when the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews, he did so because, historians tell us, because of disturbances over krestos. Now there are no disturbances over kindness. Okay, nobody has a riot because someone was kind to them. No, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about Christ. Paul is deliberately, I think, playing with that pun here, that play on words that the Corinthians would have understood and known about. The confusion in society as though to signal to them, who am I really talking about here as I describe what love is and love is not? I'm talking about Jesus Christ. When we step back and we see this whole description of love, we are meant to see a wonderful portrait of the character of Jesus. Where do you get love like this from? How will you begin to love like this? You do it by realizing that you have first been loved like this by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's a great hymn of celebration and praise to the Lord for the cross. But the hymn writer, I think it's Watts, uh, wrote these words. Were the whole realm 
of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. When you see how much you've been loved and with what kind of love you have been loved, when you see what has been done for you in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you, you will find your heart beginning to melt and you will begin to love because you have first been loved. You get love like this by becoming the recipient of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to love like this, that's where you start. You go back to the cross. You go back to Christ crucified and see how you are loved, and you will begin to love in return. I often explain it this way. When I say at the end of virtually every service here, you are loved, what I mean is you are imperfectly loved by this pastor who doesn't always get it right. But at the same time, you are perfectly loved by a gracious, merciful God. And Scripture tells us, that he demonstrated that love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing kind of love, isn't it? So that means you don't get to just love people when they are lovable. Let's face it, some people are easier to love than others, right? Okay, so you don't get to go, well, you know, you, you're kind of difficult, so no. No. That's one of the things that makes, makes a loving marriage so strong. Because I can guarantee you, over 32 years of marriage, I haven't always been the most lovable guy. There's certainly been times when it wasn't so easy for my wife. I can guarantee you. But, but that love comes from the love of Christ. And then finally, I want you to notice this morning, love is eternal. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. It matters because it makes us like Jesus. We begin to love in a way that reflects his character, his love for us. And then finally, it matters because love is eternal. That's what Paul says directly in verse number 8 here. Love never ends. It lasts forever. And he uses a couple of illustrations to explain what he means. He wants the Corinthians to understand your gifts are temporary and they're partial. So he's fundamentally saying, stop putting so much emphasis on your gifts. Stop trying to leverage your gifts to make other people think that you are something you're not. Understand that gifts are all disappearing, but love never ends. And so we see this idea of full maturity and a clear picture. These two illustrations to show us what he means. The first is in verses 10 and 11. It's the illustration of a child growing up into maturity. We leave behind foolish and childish ways. And so a day is coming when at last we will have attained full maturity and partial temporary gifts really won't matter anymore. I often say it this way at a funeral. If it's someone who has a profession of faith, a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, I will say, this individual no longer needs faith. While we're in this old world, we walk by faith and not by sight. But because Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, they no longer walk by faith, they walk by sight. Their faith has become sight. That's what that maturity looks like. And so he, that's what he's talking about. And when we say of a person that should be reasonably mature when they respond in a way that we feel is immature or it's, it's unwarranted. or less, What at times we will describe that as what? That is so childish. Like, get over it, right? 
That's kind of the gist of what Paul is saying here. When I became a man, I put away those childish things. He's talking fundamentally about a spiritual maturity. And then in verse number 12, he says, Gifts work like looking in a mirror. Now, you've got to understand, mirrors in those days were not like the mirrors of our day. They were made from hammered-out metal that would be polished to a a fine shine. And so they really gave uh, a distorted reflection. Maybe uh, you've been to the crazy house at a carnival or a fair or something like that. You go through, and they've got these you know, crazy mirrors, and you can stand there, and it makes you look like you're like 40 pounds lighter than you really are. And, ooh, look how skinny I am, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then you move to the next one, and it makes you look 40 pounds heavier than you really are. You know, it's a distorted view. That's kind of what it would have been like for them. They weren't great at giving a clear picture. If you were to look in a mirror uh, in that day, It would have been an unclear reflection. And so he's saying here, our knowledge of God, ourselves, the world, is real. It's true, but it's incomplete. It's it's imperfect. But one day, we won't be dealing with reflections anymore. It will be like being face-to-face at last because we will be face-to-face with our glorious Savior. Ultimate reality, not reflected, seen in the reflection of the word, but seen face to face in the nearer presence of our Savior. Now, he says, we know in part. Then we will know fully, even as we are now known. And so what we have here, it's rich, it's sweet, it's a kind gift from God, but it's temporary, And it's partial. That's why we can't even begin to fathom what God has prepared for those who love him. We we try to get it figured out. We we see little indications of things as it relates to eternity and heaven and all those sorts of things. And and we have kind of this idea of what it's going to be like. And we were talking about that a little bit this morning in the the summer sessions. I inevitably get those questions like, well, will my will my dog be in heaven with me? And, and all those sorts of things. I'm like, I, I don't know if I have the answers to all of those specific questions. All I know is this, no one's going to be in heaven thinking to themselves, this place would really be amazing if only. If only the buffet was better, right? I mean, we, we've stayed at a few hotels. We're like, this place would really be amazing if only. Heaven's not going to be like that. There's not going to be anything missing Where you're just kind of like wandering around aimlessly wishing for something better. There's nothing like that. And so here we can have some idea and we get a sense of of some of these things and some of these great truths. But but it's, it's temporary. It's partial. And so we ought not to boast in it when the real thing is still to come. Love endures. Lasts forever. Paul is saying, don't make more of gifts than gifts deserve. That's what Paul is saying. The day is coming. Jesus is coming. Heaven is coming when gifts will be redundant. Verse 13, faith, hope, and love, these three will abide, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the master grace. Faith works by love. Love hopes all things. Love is the master grace. Love is the operating system is what Paul is saying here. It's the image of Jesus formed in us. Why does scripture tell us that the world will know us? They will know us what by our love. By our love. Love makes us fit for heaven. 
to be with Christ forever, the king of love. Love lasts forever. So if we could for just a moment bow our heads, close our eyes, I want you to just reflect for a moment upon what God is saying to us through his word here. I hope and pray that like me over the last couple of weeks, you've gained a profound new appreciation for the body of Christ, for the church, for the diversity that is seen here, for the unity that is expressed here, not just here, but in the church around the world. And while you may be here this morning and you're saying, Pastor, I'm not even certain of what my gifts are. We'd like to help you discover what those giftings may be. The part that you can play in the body of Christ. But I'm also struck by the fact that we so often abuse these things. when we're prone to become self-absorbed and self-centered, self-promoting, which is apparently a big issue with the church at Corinth. Because I have certain gifts, I don't have need of you. Because I don't have the giftings that you have, maybe I'm not that important after all. It's an amazing work that God does in and through us by his grace for our good and for his glory so if you say pastor I, I want to know and understand and live out my giftings my passions for the glory of God for the advancement of the gospel and I want to do that in a way that honors the Lord may that be our prayer today it may be that you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're even uncertain whether you're a part of the body of Christ. And I don't just mean the inner circle of a local church in that sense. You may be uncertain about your eternal destiny. Scripture says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we can know our sins are forgiven, heaven will someday be our home, and we can walk in new life. It's given to us through Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the wisdom, and we thank you for how even in the giftings that you entrust to us graciously, generously, we see an amazing picture of the gospel. Lord, help us to live in such a way to play the part that you have equipped us to play, not for our own glory, but for your glory alone for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we thank you.
and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.